Good morning, Christ Central. I'm Andrew. I'm one of the pastors, and it's my joy to bring to us God's word today from Mark chapter 11, verses 15 to 19. I've entitled the sermon, Cleaning House. Let's give our full attention as we read God's word. Mark chapter 11, verses 15 to 19. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. This is God's word for us. Would you join me now in a quick word of prayer? Father, we ask that you would speak to us this morning, Lord, that every Sunday we're reminded we're here not to just hear empty words, but we're here to hear your life-giving words that are alive and active sharper than any double-edged sword. Would you pierce our hearts today, open our eyes to see you more clearly and the things that please you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. All of us know what it's like to need to clean things, right? Whether it's cleaning our rooms, cleaning our homes, and of course, to some degree, it's a matter of preference, right? Messiness, it's subjective, to some degree, but there are other things that are non-negotiables that you need to clean, right? Cleaning the restrooms, cleaning out the trash, taking it out. Those are things that we need to do because if not, we know the space we are in is going to get contaminated. We know that it's going to get dirty and we can potentially even be poisoned by bacteria and disease if we don't clean those things out. It affects our health. Well, this passage is interesting to us growing up. We don't expect to see Jesus like this, but he comes in angry, throwing a tantrum of some sort. We don't expect this from him. He seems to be losing his cool, but I want us to see also today that despite seeming like he's losing his cool, he never loses his character. There's a reason why he's so angry. You see, the temple, the house of God, was being defiled and tainted. Something about it was made unclean. There was something about it that was unclean and if left unchecked, would lead to further contamination. The poisoning of souls. The poisoning of people's spiritual conditions. And so Jesus begins cleaning house. He cleanses the temple, and in seeing what he does, I do want to make two observations for us this morning. So two things to consider. First, what not to make space for. In other words, there are things you don't tolerate when you clean, right? You need to get rid of it. You have to remove it. Things that are like trash that need to be taken out. What not to make space for. And then second, what to make space for. When we do clean, we often make space for good things, to clean out space, throwing out the junk and the clutter so we can replace that 
with more important things. And so today, what not to make space for and then what to make space for. And we're going to start with what Jesus, what we ought not to make space for. Our passage begins with Jesus driving out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. He's driving them out. He's over. He's flipping tables, the tables of the money changers and the seats of all those who were selling pigeons. What, what is going on here? What is this image, this picture, uh, kind of a crazy scene? What is all of this about? Well, every year, you see, every year people would flock to Jerusalem around this time for the Passover feast. And they would do that in order to worship God in, the, in a way that was in accordance with the law. They had to bring kosher animals that they could sacrifice, animals that would meet a certain criteria or requirement that would be acceptable to be sacrificed. And as many traveled these long distances to bring these animals along was really not practical or realistic. They would have these long journeys and they would need to bring animals such as sheep, goats, and even pigeons. But to do that was really an inconvenience. And so in the temple, there were those who would sell and provide these animals upon arrival. You see, another thing they had to do was pay the temple tax. People every year needed to pay this amount and they could not just pay in their native money, but that, that money had to be converted into the temple currency in order to be acceptable. And this is why there were money changers there, there. This is why there were people selling these different animals. Because it was in accordance with how they would worship. It was in accordance with how they would sacrifice. So then, why was Jesus so angry? Right? What was it that so bothered and so upset him? And I want to examine that now. And I believe it's really three things that really were on his mind that he was so adamant about not making space for. And so the first, empty worship of God. The first that thing that he didn't want to make any space for was empty worship of God. You see, some think that this house of prayer Right, this house of prayer becoming a den of robbers suggests that people were being taken advantage of. That the, those who were maybe selling these sacrifices were marking up the prices. They were jacking it up so that they could make a nice earning. They were using their position in order to make more of a cut. It was more for their personal gain that they were practicing these religious things. Now, I don't think that is the case because we know that Jesus drove out not just the sellers, but also the buyers, right? He was driving out this whole practice, everything going on. And so I really think the issue here, what Jesus was primarily concerned about was really the attitude, the attitude and the culture behind worship and sacrifice. You see, the main issue was this culture that had formed, and we see this confirmed in Jeremiah chapter seven, where Jesus quotes, he quotes in our passage today, this verse, these verses. Will you steal, murder, 
commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. You see, Jesus quoting Jeremiah here in our passage today in its context of Jeremiah seems to suggest that the issue was people abusing and taking advantage of the sacrificial system. That they could live however they wanted, that they could follow other gods and idols and just come and just sacrifice and they would be okay. That I, I did my job, I covered my back, I'm good now, I'm safe, I'm delivered. And this seems to be confirmed even further by the fact that our passage is a very unique one because it's sandwiched in an account where Jesus discusses the cursing of a fruitless fig tree. You see, our passage is connected to the broader context because this cursed fig tree really pointed to the fact that Israel, this, who this fig tree represented, was meant to bear good fruit but they didn't. In fact, they bore no fruit at all. That those who claim to be the people of God, those who claim to be the children of God, didn't seem to bear the fruit of God. So what's up with that? You see, fruit, although it's not the basis of our adoption as children of God, fruit does serve as evidence that we are in fact children of God. And if we were connected, if they were connected to the true vine, Jesus himself, then they would bear good fruit. But they didn't. And that's what Jesus' issue was. You see, Jesus' anger was against this empty worship. It was against just paying lip service. These hollow, fruitless rituals of just show up, get in and get out, and I just did my duty for the day. You see, that's what he was against, a type of religion that is purely external, just about the religious rites and ceremonies, but it wasn't about engaging the heart, and that was the problem. Second, a second thing that Jesus did not want to make space for are poor witnesses for God, poor witness for God. You see, many of us, we've booked hotels or maybe it's an Airbnb or a vacation stay somewhere. And we've looked at pictures, right, to see, is this a good spot? Should I take my family with me? Should we stay here for the night? And a lot of times when we, take, when we look at these pictures, we get a good idea of what to expect and how many of us have experienced when we do arrive, when we do check in, and it turns out it really didn't look like those pictures, right? It looks very different. The pictures, the photos seem now in hindsight to be really touched up, right? Maybe it's crazy. Half the things aren't even there. It reminds me of a lot of those videos of expectations. And then you get another video of, but the reality, right? The reality was very different 
from the expectations. And I believe this, in many ways, is one of the biggest problems that God's people had back then, but also one of the biggest problems we face as a church now. You might think of it as false advertising. The things you say, what you preach, it sounds great, but when I come, when people actually come, it looks very different. It's like a bait and switch. It's hypocrisy. And often, including in this time, in this passage, it started with the leaders. The leaders. You see, Jesus points out the same critique and he cites the Old Testament. He himself quotes when it comes to being a house of prayer, Isaiah chapter 56, verse 6 to 8. The foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him and to love the name of the Lord and, be, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be a called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. You see, Jesus quotes this to make crystal clear that the main purpose, one of the main purposes of God's temple and of God's people is to serve as good and faithful witnesses to the nations. It's meant to be attractive to the nations so that they might come, they might enter in as well and become worshipers. But the activity and the culture in the outer courts, in our passage today, we're providing really a poor witness. You see, as foreigners, as Gentiles, as outsiders, as they came with hearts to worship, they would instead witness empty worship. In 2019, there was a survey from the Barna Group that noted this, 97% of Christians across four generations. So this didn't include Gen Z, but across four generations, millennials, Gen X, baby boomers, and elders. So 97% of Christians surveyed across these four generations agree with this statement. The best thing that could ever happen to someone is for them to come to know Jesus. So 97% agreed with that statement. And then at the same time, 47%, right? About half, 47% of millennials, along with smaller but still significant percentages from the other three generations, they also agreed with this statement. It is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. So 47, about half of millennials disagreed that you should share your faith and hope someone would come to join you in sharing that same faith. In other words, they were against evangelism. Why? Why? What's, what's the deal? What's the discrepancy? What's going on? And I think this is why. I think this is why it's so tough to share because there's an image of Christianity today that has been so tarnished. 
by poor witnesses. That there's a caricature of Christianity that is this, that Christians are unwelcoming. They're clicky, they're narrow-minded, they're holier than thou, they're fake, they're not genuine, they're unloving. And there's some who've even left churches who really have given this critique of, it's not that we don't believe in your Bible, it's that we don't think you Christians believe in your Bible. And you see, Jesus in our passage today wants to make it clear that it's not okay, it's not okay to be like this. He doesn't want to make space for poor witnesses, or more, accurate, more accurately here, false witnesses. Third, Jesus doesn't want to make space to use, for using others in God's name. Using others in God's name. You see in verse 17, when Jesus describes, you've made my house, what a den of robbers. What does that mean? Well, this den of robbers typically refer to these caves where robbers, thieves were, would associate. They would hide there. They would scheme. They would plot. And so using this, it's so interesting, the irony, right? That robbers who would gather in these hidden places, it's crazy that here they're in broad daylight, right? In the temple of all places, under the guise of services, resources, and devotion, and yet they were actually about their own gain. They were about their own gain. And we see this often today. It's what's known as consumer Christianity. Right? Religion for my gain, my benefit. What's in it for me? Right? I'll engage in worship. Hey, sure, I'll even give some offering. So long as I'm still benefiting. Right? As long as it doesn't really cost me too much, yeah, that's fine. Right? This is the attitude behind really children's ministry and youth ministry being all about entertainment, all about fun. Right? We just want to have a good time. That's why I'll go to something like that. Or those who go to events and conferences only because of the raffles or the prizes. And the bigger the raffle or prize, the more likely I'm going to come. Right? What's in it for me? How about on the flip side? Sometimes this is also how churches think through how they'll bring people in and think through their vision. Right? Let's put on events or services to attract more people. Why? so that they bring more offering and money. Why? So our church will grow, so that we'll have a bigger budget, we'll have a bigger building, we'll have a bigger brand name. Really, it's about a bigger business at the end of the day. Right? We'll be comfortable, successful, we'll benefit, and we'll gain. Now, wanting to attract more people, wanting to grow, even wanting a bigger budget, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Right? These are not bad things, but they must be the means that lead to true worship. Because if they become the ends and then worship becomes the means, then we become just like what Jesus is upset about here. And we know it's easy. It's very easy to twist worship or ministry to become something that it's not. I think a helpful heart check that I frequently ask myself, and hopefully it's helpful for you, is really see what makes you impatient. When you're impatient, pause and ask, what is going on in my heart right now? 
What's causing me to be so irritated? And oftentimes, if you're like me, sometimes your thought process goes like this. Man, these things, these other people, and these needs are just getting in the way of me trying to do God's work, trying to do work for God. And the irony is that often it's our view of work for God that is really about work for me because I want to be God. I want things to go according to my agenda, my timeline, and my way. And when people interrupt that or when they get in the way, I get irritated. And so irritation, impatience, it's a great way to see what is really going on in your heart, to see if you're really using people instead of serving them. So these are some things that Jesus does not want to make space for. He wants to clean up. He wants to cleanse. And he wants to do that to make space for some good and positive things. And we're going to look at that now. So our second point, what to make space for. First, it's outsiders. Verse 17, Jesus teaches that his house shall be a be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Now I want to pause and look at this word nations for a second because this word for nations is also the word for Gentiles. The word for Gentiles. You see, Jews and Gentiles had really bad relationships during this time. There was a uh, a zealous nationalism about the Jewish faith that made it feel like we are better than everybody else. And it really looked pretty racist. Anyone that wasn't Jewish was considered lesser, not as good as us. We are God's people. They're not. And they treated them that way. They looked at them often with disdain. You see, they didn't get it. The Jews were meant to be good witnesses faithful witnesses to extend blessing to the rest of the world, right? Abraham, the, the forefather of all the Jewish people, the covenant made with him was a blessing to all the world, and they didn't see that. They got that messed up. They didn't see their purpose and their mission. R.C. Sproul, in his commentary on this passage, notes this, the Jews hoped that the Messiah would cleanse the temple of Gentiles, but Jesus cleansed the temple for the Gentiles. And I think this is so important for us today, a lesson to learn on just how we can interpret, how we understand this idea of us and them, us and them. You see, first, the Pharisaical heart will say, keep them from us. Right? Keep them from us. We don't want to associate with them. A pharisaical heart is a, con- a, a comparative spirit. It's a spirit that is really a poor witness by default, isn't it? A spirit that says, thank you, God, that I am not like those people. I'm better than, right? I'm better than them. And now when we hear that attitude, when we hear those words, we are tempted to chime in. Man, yeah, you're, I hate those kind of people those bigoted people who think they're all holier than thou, that they're so much better than everyone else. Man, I really don't like those people. And I want us to pause if we think that. I want us to pause 
And be careful. Because in thinking those words, man, thank God, I am not like those stuck-up people. Aren't we doing the same thing? Right? In thinking we're superior, don't we demonstrate that we're the very same, that we're just like them? And it's because a lot of all of us, we, we all are. We all have those moments, that tribalistic instinct that wants to hang out with just those who we deem worthy. Right? It's in a form of elitism and then fill in the blank. Elitism of those who share the same blood. Right? It's all about my family. Anyone who's not my family, I really don't care about too much. I treat really much, much lower. Or maybe it's about race. Maybe it's about those who have the same social standing or same social class, the same wealth. Or maybe it's about those who have the same views as you. Anyone who doesn't share those views, you judge, you look down on. You see, Jesus wants us to make space for outsiders, even those we deem Pharisees, because we might just be one of them. Second, we want to instead look not at the Pharisaical heart to have, but really a Christ-like heart. And a Christ-like heart instead of saying, keep them from us, says, invite them to join us. Invite them to join us. A Christ-like heart wants to make space for outsiders because it understands that's what we once were. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 through 11, it reads this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? The unrighteous won't inherit the kingdom of God. And then it goes through this long list of what that looks like. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then get this, verse 11. And such were some of you. And such were some of you. You see, this is the gospel, isn't it? The good news is that we know that we were just like that, that we all once were outsiders, that we were unrighteous, undeserving, sinful, that we didn't belong in the house of God. We deserved to be cleaned out. But we would only become insiders to God's family because of the person and the work of the greatest insider, right? Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, that the greatest insider would have to come. And he would come and go so far to make sinful outsiders like you and me into holy insiders. How would he do that? Well, he, he himself would join us on the outside, he would leave heaven and he would join us and he would live the perfect life we couldn't live, but he would die the death that we deserved. He would be expelled outside the city gates of Jerusalem, outside the holy city, and he would be nailed to a Roman execution tool, crucified as one of the worst outsiders. You see, he would be cleaned out. 
he would be taken out so that space could be made for you and I. Space could be made in God's house. And for sinful outsiders like us, this is such good news. Jesus makes all the difference. He changes our destiny, what we deserve. He turns the tables. For those of you who maybe feel that way today, you've always sort of felt like an outsider, like you didn't belong. Jesus invites you, and we invite you too, to come to him, to be a part of our church, a church made up of all these different outsiders who are welcomed in by grace alone, by his mercy alone, that we don't deserve it, but, but we're here because of what he's done. And we would love to have you be a part of that. And of course, we're not perfect. We know we, along with every church, has her flaws. But we can promise you that we're doing our best to follow Jesus, to follow his words, and to live it out as faithfully as we can. And we can see in our passage today, we are so moved by what Jesus did. We are so moved by his heart. Because often, although anger can be viewed negatively, anger can also sometimes be the deepest assurance that someone cares, that someone really cares, that Jesus so cared for Gentiles and outsiders that he was so upset when supposed insiders got in the way. How comforting to, to Mark's original readers, many whom were part of the Gentile church in Rome, to know that Jesus wants them to belong. That his house of prayer is not just for the Jews, it's for all nations, for all people. And this is good news for us. That in Christ, there's no more Jew or Gentile, but we're all welcomed in. All different sorts of outsiders are welcomed in to become insiders. I have two just practical suggestions for us when it comes to that, when it comes to engaging with outsiders. First, intentionally welcome outsiders before you hang with the insiders. Right? We know everybody, you're going to hang with your friends. You're going to spend time with them. But would you, would you be challenged to reach out to those more on the margins, those who seem new, those who feel like they don't quite belong in the group yet? that we would go out of our way to connect and welcome and invite them, to sit with them, to speak with them, to start a conversation. Second, make it easier for outsiders to feel like insiders, right? We all were once outsiders, so think about what that was like, right? Think about how nervous and how anxious someone might feel Stepping inside these doors, the doors of our church. Be aware of insider language. Be careful how you speak. Make it accessible. Right? And we want to be inclusive in our conversations as much as we can. Inviting others into the conversation. We want to hear what they have to say and to genuinely care. And right, this is why we love Jesus so much, isn't it? Because we see with him authority, but we also see deep empathy. And I hope we can embody that in how we try and make others feel welcome and feel like they're an insider, that they belong. Don't keep outsiders from us. 
invite them to join us because we really believe that knowing Jesus is the best thing that could happen to someone. And lastly, make space for prayer. We want to make space for outsiders and we want to make space for prayer. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19 and 20 tells us, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You see, those who are in Christ, the true temple of God, we also become temples, temples of the Holy Spirit as he dwells within us. We become houses of prayer. How much of our lives reflect that, how natural that is. Just like we eat and drink, prayer is a necessary part of a Christian's life. Prayer means intimate access to God, that you can approach him in confidence and assurance that you can come before him in his presence and be welcomed and invited. And a big part of prayer of making room for outsiders is to pray for them, is to pray for them. See, I'm sure the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the ruling priests, I'm sure they taught. I'm sure they taught a lot about God. But I don't know that they prayed a lot for others, for the outsiders. I wonder, because they lost the sight of the true mission of God, if they also lost that heart of prayer. And so practically for us, for those of us concerned with God's mission to welcoming outsiders, it starts there with our prayers. Let's talk to outsiders about God, but let's also talk to God about outsiders. That we would do one of the most loving things that we could do for others to wear them and their needs on our hearts and then to help carry their burdens on our knees in our prayers. See, to conclude, Jesus cares a whole lot about keeping his house clean. To not make room for the things that don't belong, the things that will poison and and really kill. He would flip over tables. He would drive certain things out. And instead, he would make room for outsiders. He would make room for prayer. Today, I want to end with just a few introspective questions for us, things to think about, things to ask yourself as we think about our passage today. Are there things that we are in the business of that Jesus would overturn? Are there things in your life you're in the business of that Jesus would just flip over and say, that's not a priority. That's really not important. Don't make room for that. Another question, what's what's crowded out our hearts? What's so crowded out our hearts, our attention, our thoughts, that we don't care so much about welcoming outsiders? That we don't care so much about being good witnesses? to be a blessing to the nations. When we ask this of ourselves often, and Lord, would you help us to care? Would you help us to make room? 
room for outsiders and prayer, room in our schedules, room in our wallets, room in our hearts. Just as you, just as you made room for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your love. We thank you that you would make us who were outsiders into those who belong in the household of God. Father, we know there are many things in our lives we often wrestle with, things that we don't pay a lot of attention into cleaning out. Help us. Help us to get rid of those things. Help us to make room for the things that matter most, especially to make room for outsiders and especially to make room to pray. And we pray and ask that as we do that, that the world would come to see that we are your disciples, that it would come to attract those of all nations, knowing that your house is a house of prayer that they're invited to. And Father, we thank you so much that we can do this together as your church, as your people. Turn over the tables in our hearts. Make us more like you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.